You're listening to Society Chats, the podcast of First United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. So I'd read all the books in the middle school library and everything, and so she would give me a book or two, kind of hesitant and quietly in front of nobody, and she said, this is the book title, write it down. I said, okay, it was Grapes of Wrath. Today we're in conversation with Judith Reedy. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Society Chats, and we're glad that you're here. Thank you. And uh, so what I want to start with is just a little background about yourself. So tell us a little bit about yourself. If you're, as you know, if you're not a native Texan, then you already know this because you've lived in Texas. And if you are a native Texan, you know this because you're a native Texan. But you know how it is. Everybody in Texas wants to know, when did you come? When did you get here? Or are you a native? Because that's a big deal with people in Texas. So uh, kind of give us a little bit of that background and uh, about where you grew up. And, and if you didn't start in Texas, how'd you get here? I am a native Texan. I grew up in a very small town, 3000, of Whitesboro, Texas, which is north of here. It's almost on the Red River. It's not in Oklahoma, but it, it's close. And um, I was surrounded. We had a huge city block that belonged to relatives of mine. So we've got my grandmother and our home and my aunt and my great aunt wow. and cousins <laughs> all in this huge block. Yeah. That is across from the First Presbyterian Church where we attended night and day, 24-7, <laughs> and across from the Church of Christ that we wondered always what went on there. <laughs> and behind us were the Baptists, and we knew what went on there. <laughs> like, and a block down the street were the Methodist Church. So that was my uh, foundation growing up. And with, you know, having all that family there was yeah. really a wonderful thing. Wow. Now, do you still have family there in Whitesboro, or you still have? I do. Uh -huh. My sister lives out in the country. She's married to a farmer. Okay. She's an art teacher, but uh, he became a farmer after he was a banker. Huh. And uh, so her, all of her family lives there. And then I have some cousins that live around there Okay. next to a farm that uh, we have. So you still have family farm there? We do. Wow. We do. With a whole history of it and just a fun place to go and be. It doesn't have a house on it anymore and didn't when I knew it. It burned down, you know, a long time mm. ago. It wasn't. Uh, it was before my grandfather bought it. Hmm. But it has a history, and it has all these beautiful uh, fields and creatures and animals and fruit, and just, it's it's great. It sounds like a great place to visit. It is. Yeah. You get to go back often? I try to go back, mm -hmm. um, you know, like maybe every couple of weeks, just run up there, because it's just oh, an wow. hour. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And just go up there and explore it, and just... My dad worked on that farm a long time after he retired, and mm. so I can just go through there. There's an old graveyard that he and the Presbyterian Church researched, cleaned, found out who those people were, wow. and it's still there, so it's very sacred. There's lots of secret places there. Oh, that's fascinating. It's good. What a wonderful place to grow up in and uh, to be around, uh, to be part of. So, um, so tell me a little bit about your family, about uh, kids, spouse, yeah, all those sorts of things. I'm married to Rick Reedy. He um, and he and I went to, as soon as we graduated from college, we went to uh, graduate school together. We each had our jobs teaching English, and he taught math and English. Mm. But we, uh, he was a double major, but we were working on our master's in English together. So we're back and forth from Howe, Texas to uh, East Texas State then, which is now Texas A&M Commerce. Uh. 
and getting our masters together. So we love the same things, the same books. We read read to him while he was driving. He read to me while I was driving oh, wow. to get that, you know, the last minute studying in that we sure. hadn't done. And so um, he went straight into education. And while we were in Howe and I was teaching English, which I thought I would never give up. This, this was my passion. I'm teaching senior English. Can you imagine anything mm. better? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, then suddenly he gets an opportunity in midsummer after I've signed my contract to come to Frisco, Texas. And it was a pay raise. It was also more people. So uh, my superintendent let us let me out of the contract and mm. we moved to Frisco. And um, he just kind of kept going into education, just kept on kept on going to school. And he was assistant principal, principal, and then he became the superintendent of schools in Frisco, Texas. So wow. When we moved there, shortly after we married, there were four schools in Frisco. And wh while he was superintendent, they added uh, 54 schools. Holy cow. So he was a busy man, and he went all the way through getting his, uh, another master's and then a doctorate. And then he, wow. he loved education. His passion was education. But I can remember he looked at me and he said, I'm going to retire next year from being superintendent. And I said, why? He loves it. He said, that's when people really should retire. Mm. It's when they're at the very top of their game. Mm. And I thought, but how's he going to do it? You know. Mm. But when people found out he was retiring, the people who sold school bonds for public schools started calling him. So he went to work for Piper Sandler. Sandler is the one that lost 68 of their 104 employees in 9-11. And so they were just a small company then, but Piper Sandler merged. And so Rick is now a vice president there selling school bonds wow. for public schools, wow. building public schools. So he still believes in it and still works full time. It's just a very different pace. Sure. And so yeah. that, so I thought I would never, ever um, want to give up my English teaching. But um, we started having children and um, I needed some, I, I wanted to try not to work one year. Mm. And Rick said, well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> Two teachers, you right. know, how that goes maybe. But um, but I was like, I was teaching piano. I was teaching, I was coach, uh, coaching and tutoring math, doing all sorts of stuff just to try, okay, maybe I can stay at home. Right. Uh, so I went to work for the Methodist church, being a Presbyterian, because there was no Presbyterian church there. Mm. And Don Underwood, who's just retired as pastor of Christ United Methodist Church, hired me. He said, I don't have any employees <laughs> at the time, if you can imagine. Wow. So, so what were you doing group, for them? Youth group. Okay. Youth ministry. He said, I want to build a youth group here. Hmm. I said, I've got a baby and I'm going to have some more. He said, bring them all up here. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care, Judith. You just stay up here. And I don't care what you do. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I've got carte blanche to do whatever. And he let me. I mean, he really just allowed me to go, you know, how I thought. He, he knew I'd taught seniors in high school. so, mm -hmm. And so it kind of went along with um, my call in that when I was fifth grade and I was at my last year possible of vacation Bible school mm -hmm. and my mother was always playing the piano and singing and leading us and I thought that was the best thing that ever happened. And so I decided that being in charge of the whole neighborhood of kids you know, I would just organize another vacation Bible school right after that one. And in my backyard and all those people's backyard who live by me, because I have their permission, <laughs> right? 
along the fence, under shade trees, everywhere, all these different rooms, and invite all the little kids who were six and under in far parts of the neighborhood by, you know, making invitations to them, everything, come to Vacation Bible School again. And I thought it was the best thing that ever happened. Of course, my parents were exhausted, or at least my <laughs> grandparents were. But I thought, oh, this is great. Yeah. And then, you know, when I turned 12, um, I, th I was the organist by then at our church. And I was by then the six feet that I am now at 12. Wow. That presented some awkwardness for me in school. But sure. at my church and my family, it was nothing. Mm. So, um, and I was always kind of in charge. So mm. I think because of that, you know. So my grandfather, whom I idolized and was an elder in the church, he would walk to church uh, on his own and join these group of men around this tree under this pecan tree. All the rest of us would go in. Everybody in the church goes inside. And it didn't take me long to think, this is where all the business happens. <laughs> out here into this tree with these men. And they would, if I could stand up, I would stand up and show you that you stand up and you put your hands behind you like You've seen maybe some older men do sure. and with their feet apart, you know, and they're talking, you know, together, yeah, you know, yeah. and I thought that is the most intriguing thing in the world. So one day I walked to church with my grandfather and when he stopped, I did too. And I just came in right beside him and I assumed the stance and everything and sat there <laughs> thinking they would love it. And this had been a real vibrant conversation. And as soon as I, they realized I was there to stay, it was just a pall fell on that circle. Mm. And my grandfather called me Judy Girl. That was his name for me. And he said, go on inside, Judy Girl. I was just crestfallen. And mm. I thought, so to me, that was kind of a subtle sign looking back on, okay, I can do a lot of things, but I can't join the men's circle. Mm. And even though women were ordained then, yeah. uh, nobody in Whitesboro, Texas had seen a woman pastor at the Methodist Church, certainly not the Baptist or, or the Presbyterian, you know. But I just looked back on it and thought, so when Don Underwood hired me, he said, you know what you ought to do right now? Because he could tell that I loved youth ministry. And he said, you ought to go to seminary and I can get you a scholarship. Oh, why did I not listen to that man? Because Perkins is expensive. I mean, I'm having these kids. I can't do this. So I waited, you know, until they were like, the youngest one was six. And I said, okay, now. Well, of course, Don was gone. And so I had to really stretch it out. and. Um, take it one by one. I remember I said, I'm going to do one class. I told Rick, I'm going to do one class. And I sat in that chair and I listened to the professor and I started reading those books. And I went, oh no, I've got to do some more. Yeah. And I said, my mother said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to just get a degree like a master's in theology or something. She yeah. said, oh, okay. And then I remember the time that I, my friends told me, they said, Judith, you, you really are, are on the elder track. I can see that. Mm. And I said, I think I am too. I'm going to have to extend it and take it. And I called my mm. mother. She mm. was not a crier. She cried. Wow. I said, Mom, are you crying? She said, not because I don't think you can do it or you're called, but I just know, for instance, your hometown. Mm. She said, one time we had a visiting pastor that was a woman, and two or three of our couples just got up and walked out, and we ordained women. And she my said, goodness. I don't want you to have to go through that, Judith. Mm. And so I was the first pastor, first female in every role I played until I got to my last appointment. I was the second. And wow. so I understood. Now, I do think that's where being tall had a little advantage. <laughs> sure. I, and it just un, unfairly so, but I You're think right. it did. Yeah. Um, but it did. She was right. There are some things that 
well, they are still out there. We're getting a lot better. But right. There were things that she feared, you know. Uh, when did you, like what year did you start that process of entering and becoming uh, a pastor? Um, so when, when did you actually start? Like in the early 90s, okay. very early, like right after 1990. So um, I was I was even then, though, thinking, even though you don't, don't have a choice when you're supposed to say, are you called to be an elder? Yes. Or will you go where you're appointed? Yes. Hmm. But in my mind, I thought, I'm never going to be anything but an associate because I'm going to be there for everything my children do. And I don't want to be the one that has to say, you've got to be here. Um, and so I can remember when my district superintendent came in at, at Frisco, where I had been a long, 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 long time and said, we want to send you to Plano. Phil Mercer was the pastor. He taught me a lot. And um, three and a half years into my stay here, he had a massive stroke. Mm. And he had sat down like you and I are sitting uh, before Christmas that year. And he had said, hey, Christmas this year falls on a Sunday, a Saturday and a Sunday. Mm. I mean, and, you know, and so we're going to have to do all these services at night. We're going to have to come back the next day and do a sermon. He said, so we need to split this. And he said, why don't you take Christmas Day? Of course, I'll take Christmas Eve. And he said, but I want to tell you about what my sermon's going to be. And he began to tell me, it's not joy to the world, it's joy in the world. Hmm. He told me his whole sermon. And I said, okay. He said, I'm telling you that for two reasons. I want, I want to run it by you. But I also want to give you the liberty to choose something completely different. Hmm. I said, okay. So I worked on mine. And about two days... Before that, Christmas Eve, um, his wife called me early that morning and said, Phil's in the hospital. Mm. He can't speak to you right now. He's had a massive stroke. Um, you're, it's, you're on. Wow. And then she called me back and she said, and he said, though, because his voice was not impacted. Mm. He said to her, um, tell Judith. I don't know if you can put this on there or not. Tell Judith that uh, there are people who will call, knowing that she's an associate and has only been there three and a half years, you know, in the actual ministry, uh, and say, so, you need some help? Because we'll come help you. And and in fact, it started happening, you know, a couple of people. And in fact, my district superintendent at the time called and said, should I come? You know, because I can help you and do this and everything. And something within me said, oh, no, we're fine. Now, we were running a big, huge building campaign mm. to get into this church. Mm -hmm. We bought the land. Mm -hmm. We were we were doing one Sunday after another, you know, telling people how that was going to be and why. It, it was huge. We were raising the money wow. that year, yeah. and then there was Christmas. Yeah. So I then I had to announce to the whole church what had happened to him. Then we had to, and I gave his sermon just as I remembered his giving it to me. Mm. I said, this is from Phil. Mm. And then I gave mine the next day. And I can remember Keith Landau was head of SBRC at the time. And he came in and he said, hey, Judith, I have something to ask you. This was on into it after Christmas. He said, we want you to be our pastor for the interim. Mm. What it did, Micah, was it really gave me uh, just jump in the fire training. Yeah. So by the time Phil recuperated and came back at the end of, ne of the next year, I mean, you know, somewhere in the spring or something, he said he wasn't going to come in until he could walk, and he didn't. But by that time came around when they 
give you this little evaluation and said, would you consider being a senior pastor? I said, yes, I would. I think I could do this. And so Phil and several other people here just advocated for me, you know, like, she can do this. And so, much to my shock, if you can believe this, there was only one woman who had a church of 750. They gave me a church of 750. They pointed me to a church of 750. And a couple of years after I'd been there, we were 1,000 people. And, I, and, and it just was a growing area. It was at the colony. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I got an invitation to come to this small group. It was like 18, and then I think it grew to 27 women across the United States who had a church, Methodist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who had a church, or senior pastors of a church, a thousand or more. Well, I was right on the cutting line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of people, I'm sure, that we hadn't rolled off the rolls. But so I qualified. Mm. I mean, because they sent me that invitation. And so I got to see how small, um, 2002, so wow. that's just 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, not even quite 20, how small a portion uh, of that ministry were done by women yeah. as senior pastors. Right. And some of those 27 were co-pastors with their husbands, and that's how they qualified. And we talked about that at our meetings. We mm. have a few meetings like in different states, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. So that was an education for me. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, that sort of uh, formative moment of going to the tree and mm-hmm. your granddad mm-hmm. and the men there and, and mm-hmm. having the impact that that made on you. Yeah. And uh, so can you talk about that a little bit, maybe about kind of feminism or, or the feminist perspective and how that's been layered into your own journey, which you've already talked about a little bit, but maybe from that angle. Does that make sense? Yes. One of the first great things that helped me was that, I don't know if you're familiar with Boy State and Girl State. It's I am. I went political. to Boy State. So I went yeah. to Girl State. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, that's helpful in forming you as a leader. Mm. And so, but with all the girls, we're all the girls, we're feeling powerful. You know, you sit sure. in the legislature, you do all this right. that you're supposed to do. So things like that and opportunities, I, that's what I would advocate for with all girls. I mean, with boys too, because my goodness, I have all boys, but, but mm. with girls, uh, advocating for their opportunities. Uh, I've got a nine-year-old granddaughter that's going to be an honor choir um, uh, in Frisco. Her performance, her first performance. You can bet we're going to be there. Big turnout. You know, for that's yeah. what she loves is singing. Yeah. So anytime, and and that is a girl and a boy thing. But anytime a girl is participating in something, it needs to be just as big a deal as go, going see your son play basketball or something. Sure. Or baseball, you know. And uh, so if it's an opportunity like Girl State or if it's, I, I got to give book reviews for some reason. I guess my English proclivity and everything. I started mm. giving book reviews so you're in front of the public. So anytime that a child of any sort wants to be in front of the public where they're the one that's leading, mm. that should be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Like I wish my grandfather, and probably years from then, he would have said, just let her stay here. Right, you know what right, I mean? Yeah. But it was when it was. Yeah. Um, but I just think that we all have to be trained ourselves with our language. I mean, mm. I would have considered myself a feminist always, and my husband a feminist, but still, were we? Hmm. You know, was our language? I remember somebody came up to me and said, uh, the person in the in the children's sermon that you have all the time says, you guys. And I went, yeah? She went, you know, think about that. Yeah. So I'm just saying, some people go, oh, it's just too much to deal with. Yeah. But I think we just have to be... Um, 
very intentional about mm. how we listen, how mm. we encourage, and the and the words we say. And I'm not just mm. talking about pronouns. I'm talking about just encouragement and don't stereotype. Yeah, you're going to either be this, this, or this, aren't you? Mm. No. <laughs> I want to be this, this, or this. I want to. I, I do want to. I don't know. Some girls play play uh, professional sports now. Right. Yeah, on the yeah. men's side. So I mean, what? Yeah. You just have to be open and encouraging, and not, you know, turn your head about it. And I know that we're still dealing with that. And our bishop and our cabinet tries to still say it's not that they don't want to appoint a woman to a place. It's how will they be received? Right. Right. <laughs> Do, do you, because I'm always interested in this as somebody who's uh, struggled with this in my own uh, cultural upbringing, um, as I mentioned a while ago, you know, I grew up in Northeast Texas and Texarkana and uh, a society very much like what you grew up in, mm -hmm. where there were certain roles and expectations. And that was just normative. I didn't think anything different about that until well into my 20s, mm -hmm. you know, because that was just the way things were. Mm -hmm. um, and then as I started to unpack those things and change, one of the things for me that's been a struggle as a white male is how do I how do I navigate this mm -hmm. in a way that's sensitive? So I'm always curious to hear from a perspective of a woman or a person of color or you know, someone who's been marginalized, uh, what you could say to this group, somebody like me, a white guy mm -hmm. of, you know, what can we do to be more? What are some steps that we can take to help us navigate this? One of the hardest things is to be intentional about choosing other people to be around and be with. You know, we get our Sunday school class. We want to stay with it. It sounds it feels safe. Mm. And we get our choir group or we get our other small group. We want to stay with it. And um, there's a lot of danger in normal, I think. Mm. And, you know, in, in what we call, this is normal. This is where I go. This is what I do. And so sometimes it hurts our, us to think that we're going to push ourselves to go off over here. But if we're intentional about mixing it up with different age group, mm -hmm. if we're intentional about talking to, I mean, I will purposely walk up and to a group of men and talk to them knowing that that's not probably what they expected or it's my most comfortable <laughs> thing. But, and so, oh, okay. Yeah, we're talking, you know? <laughs> right. And so I think if, if you do that with different age groups, different ethnicities, for sure, different languages, as hard as it is, even if you think I'm not going to be able to make it through this, I don't, my Spanish isn't good or something. Mm. That's just, that's the way we're going to um, widen our embrace and make things better for everybody else. We say, oh, yeah, I can go over to their house because I was talking to them and they acted like they understood what I was saying, even though I, my English isn't good. I feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That openness. So what do you spend most of your time doing during the course of the week? What I spend my time on is trying to check with people in one way or the other and often not by asking, how is it with your soul? Mm. And and that can mean anything, you know, sure. physically, financially, but spiritually, you know, how are you doing? And so during the pandemic, that was especially challenging because it's mm. like on the phone. Yeah. You yeah. know, but then as things loosen back up and before, too, you know, you get to spend time with them in person. And even with all the challenges that they have, you mm. see, oh, my goodness, this person is amazing. You know, <laughs> what they've gone through is still 
they are this amazing person. This is who they are. Yeah. And I think that uh, it enables me and enables anybody to say, okay, you know that great divide everybody talks about now mm. in churches in um, in America. Mm. You know, politically, what I think if we all had that opportunity to see each other, even at our frailest, and oh, this is who this is, then you we can manage mm. to worship together still. Yeah, we can manage to love one another, and that's the part of it that I think is I like to focus on is the loving one another. It's not a namby-pamby kind of thing. I don't mean that. I yeah. just mean it's genuine love. Like I, okay, I know who this person is. I yeah. see a lot of this person here and what is dear to him or what is dear to her. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to focus on. Yeah. That, it's that Christ love. It's, you know, it, it, it's the thing that's so fascinating you know, about even what Jesus did here, but that Christ spirit that's still with us, that's in us, you know, uh, that just strikes through in a way that um, just diminishes all the nonsense mm-hmm. that we yeah. that we put so much stock into that that uh, you know um, and I mean this is what you're talking about exactly that we when we when we get into a crisis mode uh, and all of a sudden that stuff just sort of falls away, doesn't it? I mean, the, it does. You don't you know if if I'm staring down the barrel of uh, a long illness or a loved one being sick or the loss of someone close like a child or a spouse, uh, you know, all of a sudden it doesn't matter that if you're a Democrat or a Republican right. or which church you went to or right. any of that. So uh, that is a really good word for us that. You know, it comes back to that, doesn't it? It always sort of circles back to that beautiful love of Christ. Thank you. Um, so these are the, the all the people that, that come in and do an interview with us. These are the questions that uh, that we talk about. Okay. So three books, three books you'd recommend to our listeners. And if you can share why, why, why are those books? Lonesome Dove by mm-hmm. Larry McMurtry, because as soon as it came out, I guess it was as soon as it came out, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, Rick and I were on our way to Florida with three little bitty kids in the back. And uh, we're both, you know, voracious readers. So we Every two hours, we shift driver, reader, driver, reader. Wow. And we just were absorbed with all the characters in there. And I think it's kind of a history lesson, too, and kind mm. of a going somewhere where most of us didn't grow up. Yeah. And you don't know about those cowboys. <laughs> you don't know about that, you know, but... But all the things that are, I mean, there's a lot of real life in Lonesome Dove. I imagine you've read it. It's probably on your bookshelf. I don't you know, know. what? I, I actually have not read have Lonesome not? Dove. I didn't. I never was into Westerns, but I have seen the television program. Yeah. So, you I know, so I have too. seen the story and I can imagine that the book is much better. Well, just for your information, I've never been into Westerns either. Mm. But Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry, I was, you know, last mm. picture show and things like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Lonesome Dove for sure. The Color Purple. Okay. Color purple because I just could, I couldn't wait till I could pick it up again. Couldn't wait till I could pick it mm. up again. And there was so much of life in there. And there was so much of seeing how uh, African-Americans mm. lived and a lot of horror involved in that. Mm. But in this wonderful, wonderful story, mm. because it was all about people of faith too. Big, yeah. big piece of that was people of faith. Yeah. Um, and seeing how their religion actually was their foundation and their kind of, that's what they had if they didn't yeah. have anything else, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I love that. And then 
to kill a mockingbird. It mm. just had to be always. It was mine. Yeah. It's it's my son who's an English teacher, senior English teacher. It's his favorite. And hopefully it's going to be my nine-year-old granddaughters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, just because it's the first of what I have seen many, many years later of saying, this is an awareness of, uh-oh, we don't treat everybody equitably. Yeah. Uh, we, gosh, we had a lot to do with this. Somebody's got yeah. to step up and um, tell us, oh, this is how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the sequel that Harper Lee wrote? Well, that was something I wanted to say. That's I almost, and Blake and I said the same thing. That's my son. Like, it almost made us take it from our list of favorites. Yeah. Because you don't want to find those things out. And that's how her father was really not like that. Yeah. He was really a racist. Right. But it made her be forced to go back and rewrite something. Mm. And maybe we all have things in our lives. If I mean, even today, that make us forced to go back and rewrite a piece of mm. life. Mm. You know, like this really isn't how you should treat people. This right. really isn't justice. Uh, so I kept it on my list. Yeah. Yeah. That's Heather, my wife, loves that's her favorite book as well. Mm -hmm. And and uh, she was so disillusioned with the sequel. Yeah. Because of how much she revered Atticus Finch and, mm -hmm. you know, what he stood for, those ideals that mm -hmm. that he stood for in the book. And so it was just a real blow to her to yeah. read. Uh, to read that, that sequel. His father really wasn't like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, there's a real lesson there, I think, like what you said. So um, anyway. Um, I, I do have one thing to tell you. Yeah, that, that yeah. It just occurred to me. So I was a reader from always, and I'd read under the covers at night after my bedtime and everything. But when I was in eighth grade, my favorite English teacher taught me. She went on to high school, but uh, and I got to go with her. But um, So I'd read all the books in the middle school library and everything. And so she would give me a book or two. And she'd say, you know, but then she gave me this book one day and kind of hesitant and quietly in front of nobody. And she said, this is the book title, write it down. And she said, ask your mother if it's all right. I said, okay. It was Grapes of Wrath. Have you ever oh, read it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I went home and asked her. And my mother said, I mean, she was a teacher, but she was an elementary teacher. And she, I don't think she'd ever read it. She said, sure. John Steinbeck, uh, yeah, uh, sure. So I read the whole thing and I'm just, you know, reading it when I can. And, and Micah, I got to those, I don't know if you'll have to go home and read it. It's probably on your bookshelf. But I got to those last 10 pages. And I'm like, what's going on? What is this? I don't even understand it. What does it mean? I mean, yes, they were starving. This man's starving. She, she lost her baby. I don't know. Yeah. And I remember it was, it was years yeah. before I really realized how the Grapes of Wrath ended and what the purpose was, how, how very impoverished all those people mm. were. But how out of all this darkness mm. they shared with one another. Yeah. She felt compelled as young as she was. I got to share. Got to yeah. keep him from dying. Yeah. So books, you know. It's a powerful image at the end of that. It is. So I, I always, I, I was in a, the play, oh, The Grapes of Wrath. Okay. So uh, uh, the, the thing that I most remember about being in the play was I played Uncle John, the drunk. Oh, and so I didn't have a lot of lines, but I was on stage almost the entire play, which is a very interesting thing to do as an actor. It is. Uh, because you have to, you you can't just sit there. You have to continue acting. Um, and, and it's much harder when you have nothing to say. Uh, but they had built a uh, a rain wall 
for the scene where they're trying to stop the flood from coming in. And so they had this water that came in on stage and they had these sandbags that we were stacking up. And, you know, when we finally started working with it, the director's yelling at us, get under the water, get under the water, you know, because <laughs> he wanted us to be soaked. And of course we were, and we did it in, oh, I think it was in the fall, uh, but it was in Arkansas, so still hot. So the air conditioner on for the audience. So here we are soaked. And we had to, the very last scene, we had to walk up to the top of this uh, ramp that they had built and the barn doors open and there's Rosa Sharon down with the man. And, yeah. and that's the closing image, you know, that you have. And uh, I'd love to say that it was a wonderful moment, but me and the guy that played Paw Jode every night would just stand there and would, would be shaking <laughs> because we were soaked <laughs> to the bone and the, the uh, air conditioner unit was right above us. So every night it seemed like the unit was on and it's blowing this cold air over our heads. You know, it was awful. Was that uh, college or was it community theater? It was in college at Washita when okay. I was at Washita Baptist. Yeah. So I helped start the community theater in Frisco when we, they, they okay. knew I was an English teacher. So uh, two guys and I did, and it lasted for a very, very, very long time. And when I found out that you were thinking about doing some theatrical things here, yeah. I would add that to my vision. Like, I think you would find that a lot of people would uh, feel called to express themselves that way. So mm. I'm hoping down the road when you, you know, okay. that you're going to really do that because yeah. I've seen what it can do. And I'm sure you have too. Oh, yeah. It's, it's powerful. It's really interesting to me uh, when I was doing my theater degree, uh, one of the things that I came across was that they had done a study. I don't remember who. And they had found that uh, in a play that the audience's heartbeats all synced up together. Really? Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Uh, and I think that happens in church as well. So it's not just, I think that's a community. Yeah. I think it's a human yeah, thing. Yeah. We all get together in a room and as we're experiencing this thing together, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, mm -hmm. which is my own push for come back to church. Uh, <laughs> yeah, There's nothing wrong with video. Video is great, but you just don't have the same experience. There's right. something that happens spiritual when we're all in the room together. Mm -hmm. uh, that 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 energy that we share um, together mm -hmm. all aligns, and they've shown that scientifically that we align wow. up together and we sh we're sharing this as a community. Isn't that powerful? It is powerful. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, so, what about movies? movies. I love movies. Uh -huh. What are your three? Uh, not favorites? as much as my husband. Okay, you cannot narrow it to, to three, but okay, I, guess, okay. I guess you did. But Shawshank Redemption. Okay. For sure. The English Patient. Mm -hmm. Did you see it? You know, I, ah! I, here's the thing, and you're gonna, you've convinced me now to finally, one day, it's on, been on my list of maybe all of it. You remember when it came out, it got panned. People no. said it was terrible. Yes, I, people I said it was awful, that it was oh, long, no. and it was boring, it and, and all that. So it sort of turned me off from it, and I never watched it. <sighs> but uh, I can see from your expression here that, uh, that I need to go watch. You do. And the Cider House Rules. I don't know if you've ever oh, seen, I've seen that. Oh, I've seen that. It's okay. a beautiful film. So all of those t are about redemption and about even the possibility, like Graves of Wrath, yeah. of in the darkest of times, mm. well, changing your mind sometimes, but also being able to give of mm. yourself. Mm. Now, that's a message you want to hear. And the further along in life you go, sometimes you think, what is my purpose? Mm. 
then you find out, oh, there is a purpose. I can still give love. I can still do that. So all three of those are for mm-hmm. that. And the one that I would want to put on there that you wouldn't let me because I can't have four, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. Go is, ahead. Is tomorrow. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps on its petty pace of time. It was one of Robert Duvall's first movies. It's black and white. He got nominated for several. It got nominated for several awards. You should watch it. It's not that long, about an hour and a half. But it is about, it's set in a little country mountain setting. And, you know, he, it's just this singular way of life. But the things that can come out of that singular way of a petty pace of life, even that, wow. it tells you there's a God, yeah. you know, the yeah. God of creation. This, there's feelings in mm. that kind of life. So anyway. I'll have to look that one up. I've never heard of Tomorrow. Yeah, Rick and I thought for a while we were the only ones that ever saw it. That's something. So one of his early films then. And he loved it. Robert Duvall loved it. Oh, he's one of the finest actors we've produced, I think, uh, in our... Robert Duvall's a fantastic actor. Um, So what about... And this is one that, uh, as a musician, is important to me, but I Mm -hmm. think music is universal. Yeah. Uh, So what about three songs that have been important to you in your life? So I just love... The reason I like All I Ask of You, Sarah Brightman singing mm-hmm, it in Crawford, mm-hmm. uh, is because of Phantom of Opera. Mm-hmm. That, you know, okay, I read the book. I went to New York and saw it in the most wonderful setting. Um, and But the story, too, of something coming from this person who is not presentable and, or, or attractive, supposedly, to other people, but they're, the love that is there. Mm-hmm. So the song and the way that it's sung and the orchestra with it yeah. is something... I, I love. Yeah. And um, anything Motown or Queen or Oh Brother Where Art Thou, any of those yeah, things, yeah. you know, are things that I would listen to um, all day. But also from the color purple is maybe God is trying to tell you something. Mm. Same thing. Maybe, you know, she has this estrangement with her father because mm. she's supposed to be a certain way in her faith and she's not mm. shook. Mm. And she starts from across the river singing, maybe God is trying to tell you mm. something and works her way all the way into the church. And so I think maybe God is trying to tell us something mm. sometimes yeah. when, the, when the normal is not really what we thought it was supposed to be. Mm. So mm. I'm a pretty se- serious person, it may seem like. So I think all those serious thoughts, but I'm also... Uh, love learning from them, mm. you know, yeah. that the songs teach you something, mm. uh, the songs that, that I, but I mean, I grew up on classical music because I, I was, you know, a pianist and everything. Right, right. But those are just songs that like Pass Me Not or Gentle Saver by yeah. Lyle Lovett and his big yacht, uh, large band, you know? <laughs> yes. Right. I can just sing that all because I can hear my grandfather. I used to go out in the country and accompany his quartet and he would sing that bass part. So wow, I like all kinds of music, Micah. Yeah. All kinds of music. Yeah. And I'm glad you're here because I can listen to all kinds of music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Do you still play? I mean, I'm sure you still can play, but do you still play? You know, I don't regularly. I've got a piano in my house. My mother started crying, you know, when she said, she said, people will uh, criticize you because you're a woman as Mm -hmm. pastor and you're going to give up your piano. I know you are because you can't raise your children and work. I was working full time and be a pastor. And I said, no, that'll never happen. I had to give up my organist because I had a pastor tell me, you either the preacher or the organist, which one do you want to be? I said, uh, oh, of course I'm the preacher. And then uh, you don't practice and sure. So I don't mm. play it too much. Mm-mm-mm. My goodness. Well, maybe it'll come back at some maybe. point. You don't forget, I'll tell you that. 
so what about Bible Bible verse, something mm-hmm. that's in, important to you? I'm sure that you could give me passages from books as an English uh, uh, person, English major. Um, but let's let's narrow it down to the Bible, maybe a one or two or whatever whatever you want to share. Bible verses that have the been important to you. The one I love is Hebrews 13 too, because uh, it says, do not be afraid to welcome strangers because mm-hmm. to your table, mm-hmm. because thereby you may have ch- entertained angels unaware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's happened. I'm sure it's happened to, to you. It's happened to other people. You know, there's people at your table and all of a sudden, and, and, and they don't look like you, they don't speak like you, and they're there for some reason or whatever, and all of a sudden you're learning things about God you have never learned before. Mm. And your world just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's been my favorite since I was a youth minister all those years ago when we got our first computer at the church and the the tech guy came in and said, what do you want your code to be? I said, I don't know what I want my code. Oh, just give me your Bible verse. So it's always been my favorite for that reason because I've seen it happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with our travel, I don't mean our tra- anybody's traveling or opening up their hearts or their homes, because you, you have to be intentional again, like we have going to have to do in church always, to including that new person. It's maybe not comfortable, mm. and all of a sudden you go, "Wow, I can't do without this person anymore." Mm. I'm going to have to ask them. You know? Yeah. Wow, that's wonderful. So uh, for the people, and you sort of mentioned this earlier that, uh, you know, your cell phone numbers and everything. Of course, we have the website. Or mm-hmm. uh, uh, So what are ways that people can connect with you if they want to connect with you? Well, you know, the best way is to text me. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm serious. It's 972-989-9359. Because what I found is my phone still says Grand Prairie. Well, in today's scam and all that, those yeah. kinds of things. A lot of our members, if I call straight from there, even if I'm in my office, if I call from the phone instead of the church phone, they don't answer me. And mm. if they don't answer me the first time, I just pick up the church phone and call from that. And I say, put this number, you know, in, right. in your in your right. phone. And they go, oh, okay, okay. But it's good because you've got texting on it. And yeah. so I, you know, a text immediately, even in, in a meeting when you can get to it, mm. you know, you'll you'll see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm up here at the church office regularly on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you know, and other times too, but mainly those times. Um, okay. I, I think I'm pretty accessible. Yeah. Okay. Say your number again. Slow. 972. 972- 972. 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989- 989